Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, as well as with video here on YouTube. And welcome to my show. Uh, often I have guests who I speak with who um, are either former Scientologists or are professionals in some field who have sometimes reached out to me. Uh, I don't always reach out you know, in that direction. Sometimes they reach out to me and go, hey, you know, as a professional or as somebody who's trained in this field or this area, I think I have something valuable and important to contribute to the conversation about how destructive cults operate, how Scientology operates, and it's been something I've been interested in, even if they are not or never have been involved with Scientology in any way. And this week, I have a show that we're going to be discussing some of the Scientology justice and ethics and I guess you could say legal things that go on in Scientology. I, I, I'm stretching the word legal here because uh, we're not talking about, you know, like the law, but just in, in, in the world of Scientology, there's a whole set of rules and guidelines and policy letters that Hubbard wrote or had written, which describe and create a structure for justice for people in Scientology. And one of the bigger complaints about uh, Scientology from people who have come out of that group is that the justice actions that they received were not exactly impartial, objective, or fair. Um, and I readily agree with that because I was at the receiving end of you know, no shortage of justice actions when I was in Scientology. And I was also on the giving end. Uh, when I was a, you know, a true believer of Scientology and I was all in on it, I thought, because L. Ron Hubbard says so, that Scientology's justice procedures were fair, were objective, were rational, and were based on, you know, common sense thinking and, and, and it was better than what we have in the WOG world, as Scientologists call it, in other words, the real world. Uh, and I was not really very tuned in or knowledgeable about life in the real world or what it's like in a court of law or what goes on. I've since learned, since coming out of Scientology, that life in the legal world has all kinds of pitfalls and perils, and it's not exactly a perfect system by any stretch. But Scientology's justice system is far from uh, a good alternative. So... This week, uh, we're going to be discussing this with uh, a, a special guest. So I want to actually, because I absolutely butcher everybody's name, if it's not just straight standard English, um, go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your experience and what prompted you to reach out to me. Live long and litigate. Uh, my name is Kiprayan Eliu Ivanov. As you can probably guess by the name, I wasn't exactly born in the U.S., so that's another perspective to add to things. I recently graduated from American University Washington School of Law, and I've taken an interest in the intersection of law, morality, and religion for a while. And Scientology is an interesting case where it all comes together. But uh, first of all, because I have my own uh, licensing to care about, a disclaimer. I'm a recent graduate with a JD degree. I've studied law, but 
being licensed to practice law is something else entirely. I'm not admitted to practice in any jurisdiction. Anything I say here is about theoretical issues and cannot have the detail to be reliable advice for anybody's own legal situation. Some legal issues are simple, but real life is complex. So just hearing the theory isn't enough to help a person. I'm not your lawyer. I'm not giving you legal advice. I'm only explaining some of the larger theory. Sounds perfect. Thank you very much for uh, for actually putting that in there. Of course, a lawyer would, <laughs> and uh, and it completely makes sense. Um, and of course, the same holds true for anything I say because I'm just uh, Joe Lehman, a former Scientologist and fairly educated individual. So, uh, okay. So why don't we get into this? So first off. For those of you out there who don't know anything about Scientology's justice system, let me just take a minute to sort of describe some of the framework of it, and then we'll get into the critique and some of your thoughts about it. Um, Scientology's justice system consists of a, a, a gradually increasing level of actions that are taken on an individual or a group, I suppose. You could have like a, a, a group of Scientologists, like an org or a division of an org, or even a Scientology company or something that the church might feel for some reason compelled to tar- start taking action against. And when they do, Hubbard wrote out uh, a series of, of, of steps to take in order to uh, you know, give fair and legal justice, he said. Um, these things start with something as simple as commenting to someone that their behavior or actions are wrong or there's something off about them. Then writing a knowledge report, which is a written report that goes into a file that is kept on every single Scientologist with their name on it. It's supposed to be a confidential file. It's kept in the ethics files. And so a knowledge report would be information somebody had about Joe Schmo, and they write up it, write it up and send it off to the ethics officer. Often, um, you're supposed to send a carbon copy to the person you're reporting on, but often that doesn't happen. And then you have, um, you could have an interrogatory issued on you or on the group or whatever by the ethics division or section of a Scientology organization. An interrogatory is just a series of questions. It's done in order to carry out an investigation uh, to see if there is a crime or see if there's some problem. And when I say crime, I'm not referring to a misdemeanor or a felony. I'm referring to Scientology-defined crimes because there's a whole list of them. Scientology has errors, misdemeanors, you know, crimes, and high crimes. And they have a whole breakdown of this in the ethics book and in their policies. So Scientology isn't necessarily interested in your uh, legal crimes. They're interested in the things you've done that violate Scientology's rules. Um, okay, and then you have, uh, after an interrogatory, you could end up in a court of ethics, Court of Ethics is usually a one-on-one deal where a person is assigned to carry out the Court of Ethics on you. You are charged with certain crimes or misdemeanors or whatever. And it's pretty much assumed, as I experienced Courts of Ethics, that you are guilty. If a Court of Ethics is called, you know, you're not meeting with the person to hash out why you're innocent. You're meeting with the person in order to hash out what you're gonna, what disciplinary actions are going to be carried out. If you truly are innocent, then you could plead your case and maybe the person who's holding the court of ethics could write back to the ethics officer and say, hey, 
actually, this was all a big mistake. Here's all the information, and then maybe something gets sorted out. I did see that happen. But more often than not, with a court, you're going to be guilty, and you're going to be uh, you know, figuring out what the disciplinary actions are. Following a court would be a committee of evidence, which is a very heavy, the, the heaviest body of jurisprudence or, or you know, judgment body. Uh, usually has three to five members who review all the information you were assigned, you're, you're, you're accused of various crimes, high crimes, etc. You go to the committee of evidence, you present whatever evidence you have. This is the most similar thing to what goes on in a court of law in Scientology. In other words, there's a body, you know, there's a judge kind of thing, and there's you, and the person isn't called a judge, they're called committee members, but they're basically deciding on your guilt or innocence of these various charges, and they're the ones deciding on what the disciplinary actions will be. A committee of evidence requires the approval of a justice chief, a continental justice chief who's a Sea Org member, and then finally, the international justice chief. Every single committee of evidence that's held in Scientology goes through these justice chiefs. So they're supposed to be objective, rational observers who don't have anything to do with what's going on, and they approve or disapprove the uh, holding of the court, the findings of the court, and the disciplinary actions. And finally, after a, court, a committee of evidence, uh, the last thing that they will do is they'll just uh, declare you a suppressive person and kick you out of the church. That's a basic rundown of the actions in increasing, increasing uh, seriousness uh, and, and, and heaviness of the disciplinary actions as I, off the top of my head. So now that I kind of laid all that out, <laughs> What was your what was your take on all this, and what was it that uh, that prompted you to write me about all this in the first place? When I initially read through some Scientology materials, I saw a huge parallel to the military's judicial system, and a lot of the functions are the same. You have an organization; it needs to run. You have a need to have power in the hands of the senior executive authority but you also need a way to find the truth and to establish trust among members. And so there's a lot of similarity in form, but when people start talking about what actually happens and the way the RPF used to be initiated to give people a bit of a respite, a rest, and to get back into understanding the material, and now it's just there to humiliate people, the justification and the punishment is completely separate now. So it's kind of an example of a punitive system that has completely gone haywire. I definitely agree with that completely. And um, key, now in terms of timing, to give some historical context to all this also for, with what you just said, Hubbard was in the military. I, of course, was not ever in the military. I was in the paramilitary of the Sea Org. So I can't speak to military jurisprudence or how that works. So I'm actually kind of interested in what you have to say about that. Um, Hubbard came up with most of these policies in the mid-1960s. That's when ethics and justice became a thing in Scientology. Up until then, it was kind of a free-for-all. You know, Hubbard would sort of dish out discipline arbitrarily based on whatever he was thinking needed to be done in order to deal with some recalcitrance. But he set up a formal structure in the mid-1960s at St. Hill as part of framing up the whole organization and the whole 
structure of the organization. In 1967, L. Ron Hubbard formed the C organization, S-E-A, the C organization, which was the paramilitary thing. And um, that is when he started getting very heavy-handed with his followers, throwing them over the side of the ship, for example, if they had made some mistake that he found objectionable. Those were called overboards. And developing a series of things called the conditions formulas, including these things called lower conditions, which I've described before. We won't go into a whole lot of detail about that, but it's basically a way of uh, a series of steps a person is assigned to do in order to um, make amends for some imagined or real wrong that they've committed against the organization. And they are punishment type actions. And they kind of are psychologically manipulative too, because they have you in your head a lot figuring out why it is that you're such an evil, horrible, awful person. That's pretty much standard cult 101 kind of stuff. Hubbard developed all of that when he developed the C, or around the same time he developed the C organization. So it was, a, it was in the late 60s and early 70s that all this stuff started kind of coming into play. Through the 1970s, at the public level, you had to pretty much screw up pretty hard in order to get at the receiving end of one of these kind of ethics actions or justice actions. But once the 1980s rolled around, the mid late 70s and early 80s, Hubbard and David Miscavige, who started making his presence known and started exerting, started sort of stretching his muscles, um, the 80s were a very uh, formative or, or it, it, important time for Scientology because that's when things got really heavy handed all the way down to the public level. And that's when these committees of evidence and suppressive person declares and stuff really started taking off in, in higher volume. So that's when I think we started seeing the really heavy-handed ethics and justice actions being taken, not just at the Sea Org level, but all the way down to the public. And it's been pretty heavy since then, uh, ever since. And it's only gotten worse over the last few years where they are circling the wagons and their membership dropping off, that they've chosen to fight that with heavier ethics and uh, tougher, you know, being tougher on their, on their membership. So at least that's how I've seen things. So how do you, how do you see it comparing to, um, at least in form, how do you see it comparing to military actions? Well, simple punishments can be handed out by senior, by unit leaders. So for example, I forgot a canteen. So I got non-judicial punishment for that. I didn't go up to a board. I didn't go up to a court. It was just, hey, you lost this piece of equipment. Now you're going to do 100 push-ups or whatever. And that handled simple things. If you go mess up even worse, like, say, going AWOL, then you start the conventional legal proceedings. And if you want to contest it, then you have a number of rights like representation, etc. But if you don't want to contest it, it's pretty much rubber stamp. Okay. And how did you how did you see that comparing with what you read in the various policies of Hubbard as far as the how Scientology does it? The military has a stronger interest in finding the truth because the judicial system is also a way of building trust with all elements of the organization, of gathering information on how smoothly, 
smoothly things are running. Uh, so you don't want people lying to you constantly and messing up a bunch of plans. It's a way to balance a number of interests by having those being heavily discussed. Okay, if I lose a canteen, uh, what is the value of that versus the stress I'm going to get or the leaders are going to get from having stuff messed up? These are things that actually need to be discussed. And even if it's not discussed in my case, it was discussed in another case. So they have the time to think about that and there's some idea what's going on. What I see in Scientology is much of the form is present. Uh, for example, the idea of mistakes, uh, those seem to have been pretty simple uh, in Scientology and that doesn't seem particularly objectionable. But when you get higher and higher, you start to see a lack of safeguards. And I think that stems from a stronger interest in obtaining compliance than in finding truth, even when it might indicate severe problems with the organization. Uh, the One of the functions of a truth-seeking judicial system is to root out mismanagement. But if, if management can say all the problems are down to the individual workers, that kind of absolves management of responsibility for messing up. And there's just so many things in uh, the Scientology judicial system that would create false positives for being lazy or ineffective or being a third party or whatnot that managers can always point to that and say, gee, we're not responsible for the failure. That's a very true. And I saw no shortage of managers in Scientology, especially in the Sea Org, take advantage of that fact. Use the justice system to, you know, to protect themselves and hurt people who really did nothing wrong in the first place. What, in terms of a theoretical, I mean, in talking about baseline theory of, of Scientology's ethics and justice, what did you think of what Hubbard wrote about the WOG justice system and how, because he basically writes that you can count on the fact that there is no thing like justice even available in our system. And that's why he had to come up with his own system because you know you can you can count on the fact that people will be railroaded, uh, they will criminals will be set free. He was he was kind of big on that, you know, criminals just doing whatever they wanted in society, and we basically are living in a criminal type society is how he would characterize it. What were your what, what did you think about all, what he had to say about all that? Um, one. Uh, he ended up uh, picking his own definitions for uh, rather amorphous concepts that were heavily debated for thousands of years. So if there's some disagreement about what justice is, and you have different people using different definitions of justice, that's kind of inevitable. And to say the entire system is wrong because it uses a, de a definition different from the one you picked, and the way Hubbard tends to invent his own definitions uh, is kind of ignoring the body of work and experience that came before. Well, very much uh, so. In fact, that was Hubbard's modus operandi throughout all the years of Scientology was to first heavily invalidate and, and cancel out anything that had come before 
so as to open the, you know, be so people would be receptive to, oh my God, this is so horrible. Everything you just said is totally true. There's injustice all the time. Serial killers walk free. You can't walk the streets anymore. The police are overloaded. The, the lawyers don't care. The judges just, you know, show up and dial it in. Obviously, that's all true. So therefore, here's this alternative system. Isn't it wonderful, right? So what, what, what did, did you see the same thing when you were reading this stuff? Or what, what was your take? Uh, Absolutely. And I saw it again when I read Keeping Scientology Working. Uh, the premise of keeping Scientology working is we don't need to be democratic. We don't need to uh, look at prior experience because, see, everything we got was perfect when Hubbard handed it down. Uh, if of 100,000 people, there's only going to be 20 that are trying to uh, get right technology. Uh, I forget the exact wording, but the premise is that large groups are incapable of finding truth, incapable of evolving truth. And well, the premise of the body of procedure in the judicial system is that evolving procedure helps us evolve truth. So it's a fundamentally different premise. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And it, and, it, and it clearly is an authoritarian type of rationalization for why the organization runs the way that it does, Scientology, I mean. Because he had to, but it's this 1965 that he writes Keeping Scientology Working. So he's actually, the, the reality is that by 1965, over half of the technology or methodology of Scientology is somebody else's invention. He claims he's the sole source of all of Dynetics and Scientology. So he's, yeah, so he's canceling out everybody else's contribution as unimportant. He even puts numbers to it and says, over these 15 years, I've gotten 100,000 suggestions and only 20 of them had any workability. And none of them, he says, had any long range or important, none of them were really important. Well, you come to find out the truth, you find out that's total nonsense, but but that's how Hubbard had to position it so that he continued to be the dear leader of the whole setup, you know? And uh, so it makes sense that he, you know, would do that if you look at it from that context, I think, you know? It, it does, and it's not unprecedented. I mean, aside from the claiming responsibility for all truth, uh, any decision-making process that tries to amalgamate huge amounts of data, darn, um, requires some degree of senior authority making a decision. One Supreme Court justice famously said, we are infallible, we are final, not because we are infallible, we are infallible because we are final. At, at the end, somebody has to make a decision. And it's a lot easier to get people to go along with it if the people think the guy at the top is perfect. There's another aspect. I think Hubbard was kind of reinventing the wheel with regards to the justice system. Uh, I mean, there are a number of purposes to law that go beyond whatever we might think of morals or justice. 
you've got peaceful resolution of disputes because we don't want people stabbing each other in the street, as may have happened yes. at a times. Uh, we want to deter people so they don't do future crimes. And will that result in some injustices now? Probably, but part of it is looking towards the future. Uh, you also want to encourage good behavior. And that's gonna require a lot of decision-making about what is good, what is behavior, what can you change, what can't you change? Part of it is compensating people and how much, how deep you're going to run into disagreement. Remember, there's a huge amount of opinions in this world and they're not all gonna be perfect. And when you have something as blunt as government action, it's gonna create something that people aren't gonna agree with. And then you have to decide what is a right, what is so fundamental that everybody has to respect it, even at the, even at the force of government action. I mean, when you talked about healthcare earlier, is healthcare a right? You actually have debate on that point. And people on one side are going to be unhappy if the other side wins and people on the other side are still gonna to have to figure out how to carry it out. You can't satisfy everyone with something as blunt as government action. Very true. One other thing I, I feel is very true, I was just having a conversation earlier today with, with someone about this, is that you also cannot, practic in practical terms, it's, you, you can't really regulate uh, morality. Uh, people say that. But there are cases where it's done. So back in the Middle Ages, there was a there was a group of heretics who didn't believe in selling property. They believed it was a life estate. When the person who paid for it died, it went back to the person who made it. That's certainly not the way everybody else's moral system works, but that was their moral system. So, what happens if you have a dispute between buyer and seller? Somebody's got to make a call. There are some people who think that uh, cannibalism, consensual cannibalism is okay. But even Europe, uh, they arrested a guy who did that. Is well, there any agreement on that point? You have to make a decision. R.V. Dudley and Stevens uh, was a case in which a bunch of sailors were stranded and they committed cannibalism. What do you do with them? You have different justifications for one result, different justifications for another one. At some point, somebody needs to make a decision, not just based on existing law, because there really wasn't that much, but based on a moral decision. Right. And, and, that's, and, and that's really kind of what I mean, is it's like you're in a situation where if it's live or die, and you're not in the middle of society, you're on some island somewhere, you know? Well, yeah, you can have an arbitrary set of rules called the law, which say, hey, don't eat, don't eat each other. And in a normal civilized society setting, a town, a city, a village even, that makes sense. You know, hey, don't kill each other and eat each other. That's not, there's other food sources around. We'll, we'll figure something else out, you know, because a village, a town, a city, they're not going to evolve or grow or, 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 or become things if, if everybody's eating each other, but you put, you know, a few people on a, on a desert Island, or there was that uh, airplane of, of soccer players who, who crashed in the Andes. 
and you got dead bodies there and they got to live, you know, and what are you going to do? It's not, they didn't kill each other to eat each other, but there were dead bodies there. They practiced cannibalism because if they didn't, they were going to die. So, you know, yeah, you can regulate morality to a degree, but when it's tooth and claw survival, you know, maybe those laws don't necessarily apply or mean the same things in different contexts. You know, and I think context brings a lot to the table as far as the decision-making process. You know, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, there was a lot of controversy over the sailors stranded in the middle of the ocean case. Um, okay, they murdered a guy and ate him, and that's murder. Oh, they murdered him. Yes, that, they're British citizens. Sorry, okay. Somebody. And there were still I mean, killing somebody in order to eat them is a, is a little bit of a different thing from what I was just talking about with the dead body there and you eat it. Yeah, I mean, they're still interfering with the corpse, so that would be a, an <laughs> issue, but certainly you could argue private necessity. Um, yes. But murder is illegal. So when the sailors murdered another another sailor and ate him, you you run into the question that the court has to face: Is their survive? Does their survival overweigh the importance of not murdering people? Right, right. And, That's a tougher question. That's a tougher one there. Yeah, and one of the benefits of the adversarial system of why both sides have people arguing for them is that you get you hear the major arguments on both sides. So the arguments on one side is it's always wrong to murder people and we're all better off if people avoid it, even if a few more sailors die. In the other case, we have an interest in numbers of people living. And yes, it's horrible that they killed someone, but nonetheless, we're better off with three people surviving instead of four people dying. Right. Which, which of course, is, is a great way to segue in back into Scientology, because I want to ask you now, uh, you just mentioned the adversarial system. And, and when you said that, I suddenly realized that's not what goes on in any of these Scientology situations. The Committee of Evidence, for example, the most serious of these bodies, has three to five people on a panel or a committee who are going to interview the interested parties, in other words, the people who charges have been brought against, any witnesses they want to call, they can call. Um, but they're the ones who are both doing the interviewing and making the final decisions. There are not, there isn't a, a prosecute, you know, a prosecutor and a defense lawyer who's who's really, you know, grounded in all of these policies. In fact, one of the things that happens with Scientologists who end up in a committee of evidence is they have to become their own legal experts because they're representing themselves in front of this body. There isn't a representative for them, at least not in any committee of evidence I ever saw. And the, and the prosecutor is the person that they're making their case to, so to speak. So automatically it seems kind of prejudicial in that sense. I don't know, what do you, what, so what was your take on all that? Um, there is a famous quote attributed to Cardinal Richelieu, um, the chief political advisor to Louis XIV, famous for being one of the most um, absolute rulers in Europe, uh, which is, comme d'un six lignes écrites de la main de le plus honnête homme du 
j'y trouverai de quoi le faire pendre. Which is to say, if you give me six lines written by the hand of the most honest of men, I will find something in them which will hang them. Wow. Almost anything can be used as proof of ill intent, which is why the ability to argue your case, to go against preconceived ideas, to be able to formulate your arguments well and to recognize the arguments of other people is so critical. And even back in Roman times, there was an adversarial system because they recognized somebody has to make a coherent case. And ordinary people are just, they've got real lives to live. And one, you need to know what the law is, uh, what the interests at play are. And I'm going to say, I studied law. I didn't study medicine. I didn't study uh, theater. I don't know a lot of the stuff that other people are experts in. Part of it is just plain specialization. Part of it is being articulate. And would you believe that of the entire population, 50% of people are below average. And actually being able to argue effectively in court requires a little more than that. Uh, one of the things observed by defense attorneys is that even among their clients who are innocent, they can't argue their case because oftentimes they just aren't articulate enough to explain what the evidence is or to explain what they were doing. You need skill, you need experience. But the, the panel of the people hearing the argument, they've been doing that as their regular job for a long time. So they know how to make the argument against people. They, cases might blur in their minds. Uh, certainly, as a law student, there are cases which, oh, I thought it was this case. Oh, no, it's that case. You forget which is which. And yep. that's one of the things that having your own advocate helps interrupt. Right. And there is no advocacy in a Scientology justice system. The person is totally their own lawyer, their own defense attorney, so to speak. It's up to them to educate themselves on the simple Scientology procedures. I, I say simple in air quotes here because Hubbard said it's supposed to be swift, easy, and, uh, and fair. Uh, it's actually none of those things. But, um, but it's presented that way to Scientologists. And then when they find themselves in the mess, it's sort of the difference between watching Law and Order and thinking you know how things are going to go down and then experiencing life in a real courtroom and finding out, yeah, Law and Order is a fantasy, man. That's a TV show. Uh, real life, way different. Way different. So, to you, say you very know, little. <laughs> So yeah, I mean it's sort of a it's sort of a representation of what goes on, but you know, come on, not really. It's a representation I mean, yeah, of it. People in the wear same... suits. People yeah, wear suits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they wear suits. That's right. Um, yeah, in the same way, CSI is is a gross misrepresentation of what crime scene investigation really looks like or how it operates. So so this advocacy thing actually is a very, very important point. It wasn't even something I'd actually thought about when we were um, when I was doing a little prep for the show here, because it was such a it, it was such a missing element in my experience in Scientology that I didn't even recognize it was missing because it was just so well. This is not the system. The system is the way L. Ron Hubbard laid it out. So, and this is the perfect system. So, you know, you can badmouth attorneys prosecutors and defense lawyers 
enough that you can make it seem as though that system all by itself, the system itself is the problem. But when you look at how Scientology executes its justice actions, you see that lacking those two things, you're really at a very huge disadvantage as the individual at the receiving end of, you know, criminal accusation. One of the things that really slows down the real life legal system is that it has very little faith in any individual element. It tries to space hearings out in order to reduce the emotional bleed. So, oh, there's this horrible murder. Everybody's angry. Let's wait a few weeks. And then people have calmed down enough that they're more likely to evaluate the evidence instead of just being really, really angry. You try to space things apart so that people have time to prepare to make arguments, to think about other things, to look at things in a new way. It's slow, it's painful, it's expensive, but most of the time we can rely on it uh, going forward at an indefinite time. When you try to make things really, really swift, a lot of it that is cutting out that, that cooling off time. So if people are in a certain emotional state or have certain incentives, their biases are going to continue to act not just at one stage of the process, but at multiple stages. And that's where whole notions of implicit bias and uh, biased prosecutors or uh, incompetent defense attorneys become so terrifying. Big time. And, didn't, and to make it clear to everybody out there, in Scientology, you have seven days to get this committee of evidence done. From the day it's issued, Seven days are supposed to pass, and then the findings and recommendations are supposed to be submitted to that justice chief person I was telling you about. So the justice, so, you know, incident X happens. Uh, you know, Joe staff member is accused of, uh, you know, embezzling funds from the church, and a committee of evidence is called. Well, it might take a week or two or even longer for the back and forth of the committee to get approved because there's paperwork that has to get submitted by the organization, goes up to the justice chief. He looks at it and goes, yeah, okay, I, I, I can see how there's a, uh, a, a reason to call a committee of evidence here. Uh, he approves it. It comes back down. Seven days later, they're supposed to have the findings and recommendations back up to him for approval. So the idea of a cooling off period, the idea of due diligence, the idea of an investigation being done, to get all the facts kind of goes all to the back seat because the, the priority is get it done quick, 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 because Hubbard said justice is supposed to be swift. So- And I was stunned when I, when I saw one week. Mm -hmm. There's a major component of due process, which is notice, you know what you're supposed to do. And if it's just one week, it's, when did I actually hear about it? Did I have time to gather my evidence to think through what happened, to think about what witnesses I might have, to think about what I'm going to argue? That's hard for lawyers, much less ordinary people, hard with a regular legal system, much less the rather confusing nature of the Scientology system. It's 
you have almost no time to respond. So any pre-existing process is going to be relied on so heavily that it's very unlikely to interrupt interrupt any mistakes that might have been made earlier on. Big time, big time. What else did you see in terms of critiques of the system that you felt were things that inherently, systemically, were wrong with this setup in terms of being able to provide fair or uh, rational justice to to someone or to a group? The words and concepts are just very, very vague. So you end up with, remember the case of, what's his name? He ran the book promotion program. Uh, he was a marketing guru. Oh, Jeff Hawkins. Jeff Hawkins. Uh, you could say his stats shot up over a long over a long period of time, and then they started declining. Yep. Now, would that be now when they shot up? You'd say he was in a position of power, right? Yes, or at least affluence. Certainly, you know things going well. When they went down, was he in a state of emergency? Yeah. Well, on a one week, but this power thing was supposed to be, that's what Jeff and I talked about with that is it goes way up into a whole new level and then it stays at that level, even though it has its various ups and downs, that's a whole new level of production. And according to Hubbard policy, that's power. But Jeff was not recognized as being in power and he was being assaulted with justice threats because it went down a little bit. And that's part of the insanity of the system. You have a disconnect between justifications and punishments. HCOPL, uh, 20 October 1967, Admin Know-How Series 17 Conditions, How to Assign. Uh, He writes that it is not enough to only follow graphs. That is a lazy, 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 no confront method when used alone. Graphs can be falsified, can be too fixed on one thing and can ignore others unless you read all the graphs of the part you are interested in. Graphs are a good indicator and should be used whenever possible. But you must keep in mind that it requires all the graphs to be wholly accurate. Uh, You had had a situation in which Jeff might have been selling fewer and fewer books, but he was getting an increasing market share of the probable audience. So which stat you pick determines everything. And as long as you're looking at a fixed stat, you're going to run into absurd situations in which you had someone who did so much for Scientology getting punished for not doing enough. That's exactly right. The system becomes its its own worst enemy because um, just to comment on that from my own experience numerous times in Scientology, including, I have to admit, myself, when I was a manager or in a management position, we would get so frustrated or mad or upset at some individual because they didn't follow some order or they they had a bit of attitude or they weren't, you know, uh, deferential enough. I mean, it would, it would become that kind of a thing. Um, and I'm not, you know, and I have to admit, I was part of that system and I was contributed to it. When that kind of thing would happen and we'd sort of start having it in for somebody, you were just waiting for their graph to go down so that you could hit them with some justice. 
You couldn't do it when the graph was going up. If they had a, you know, every single person in Scientology staff or Sea Org has a statistic that measure, measures their production. They have a primary statistic and usually they'll have a couple secondary statistics. If their statistic is going up on a graph, you cannot you know, initiate justice actions against them because they're upstat, quote unquote, which means that they have ethics protection, according to L. Ron Hubbard, because they're producing. They're the, one of the good guys. They're doing their job. So don't hit them arbitrarily with, with bad stuff. But if that graph goes down even one bit, bam, down comes the ethics, right? Down comes the justice. Uh, that's just that's just standard operating procedure in Scientology. And I think that gets to something else. Hubbard merged the concept of being an upstanding person with being an upstat person. Yes. Uh, there are so many things in which being a morally good person adds to how productive you are. But when your morality is based on your production, you end up with some really weird results. Yes. Uh, and <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> he, he justified evaluations of morality based on evaluation of stats. The inability to confront uh, downstats is the inability to confront evil. Yes. And now, if you pick the wrong stat to measure, are you failing to confront evil if you judge that that's ineffective? Exactly. I mean, there are so many problems with this. I certainly saw my share of people who maybe, you know, personally, I'm not, I'm not making a personal statement about them. Maybe they were high class bastards and they could produce well. And so they got along. Hubbard actually encouraged that behavior right in his policy letters. Um, but you could also have people who are producing their up statistic by cutting corners, by committing illegal acts. I'm talking about credit card fraud, for example. You could have somebody whose main statistic is their income, their gross income, how much money they're making for the church. And according to this way of thinking, a very natural byproduct of this kind of thinking would be, well, I'll just commit credit card fraud I'll bang these guys' credit cards and they won't know it, but I'm making money for the church. And as long as I'm not getting caught and they're not making a problem out of it, I'm upstat. So nobody can touch me for that. And isn't that exactly according to what Elbron Hubbard says I should be doing? And interestingly enough, that's exactly one thing that Elbron Hubbard complained about in regular society that short sightedness would result in chaos and death and destruction. And when you and short sightedness seems to be everything with the measuring stats by the week uh, process. I mean, Hubbard himself wrote that uh, in 20 October 1967, R uh, revised for March 1975 condition penalties, new employees and persons newly on post. Uh, all posts are begun in non-existence, but it is without penalty for 30 days. Part of that is to just withhold judgment until you actually see what this person is doing as opposed to random fluctuations. And when you measure things over such a short time, frequently under three months, you're not going to see long-term planning. You're not going to see cooperation. You're not going to see 
all the things that go to making a successful long-term organization. That's exactly right. And, and I've, and I made that uh, criticism many times because it affects everything. Now, justice wise though, this is actually really interesting because you put somebody onto a job and um, Hubbard actually noted that when this ethics system first came into play at St. Hill in England, that would happen. People would go onto a job and if they didn't have the stats up screaming in a week, off post with you. They, they were made the janitor. And then another person would be hauled in and they'd be put on that job. And if they didn't make it go in a week, well, you were incompetent and you're a screw up and you're out ethics, off to ethics with you. And Hubbard finally said, okay, even for us, this is a little too ridiculous. And he wrote that policy letter. He gave him 30 days, you know. But he talked about that kind of thing in a, in a lecture, I remember, about personnel and transferring people around. Uh, and how people got, you know, he called it musical chairs. They'd be transferred around all the time because their statistics were, you know, so up and down and up and down. So it, it, it really sets people up to get shot. And then, but the, the, the real ironic part about this whole thing is Hubbard correctly notes all the problems, but then solves it with a system that perpetuates those problems. And uh, I believe I read in one H HCOPL, he wrote, hat, don't hit, which yes. is perhaps a little ironic uh, given the current leadership. Yes, yes, very much so. And we used to try to implement that. Hat, don't hit meant educate people, train them, get them apprenticed on their job, make them do better by actually showing them what to do and how to do it. Don't hit them. Don't, don't hit them with ethics and justice and punishment drive. So he writes this policy letter and says, do this. But then the entire culture of the organization is counter to that. Every time I tried to implement that as a manager or as a senior, I, was, I received pressure from above me by my seniors saying, you better, you better handle this guy. You better get this guy straightened out and he better be producing this week or it's going to be your head. You know? And I'd be like, Damn, man, like, okay, but I wanted to have him and it's going to take him two months to get through the training check sheet to learn how to do his job. I don't care. That's your problem, not mine. You know, that's the kind of attitude and flavor of what goes on in certainly in the Sea Org and, and definitely at the staff level with Scientologists. I, I know this is going to sound kind of weird coming from a critic, but L. Ron Hubbard was an intelligent, imaginative but insane guy, but he had experience. He was a writer, he worked a number of small jobs, he was in the Navy. He got to see more of life than I think the current leadership did. So yeah, he would mess with people, he would move people around, but when he saw something that was completely not working, he actually had the ability to reorganize things so things kind of held together. Uh, he had intentions other than just bullying people. Yes, he, he did. It also speaks, though, to his vindictive nature as to how often he would apply that information because he was not some you know saintly figure. He was very involved. He was very hands-on. And he would not hesitate to pull the trigger 
uh, in all kinds of situations where it really would have been sensible to hesitate, pull the trigger, and get more information, and he, and he wouldn't do that. And his practice was to scapegoat others when he made mistakes. If he screwed up on something through some policy or some order or decision, he would routinely lay the blame on some junior person who misunderstood what he said or misimplemented it or had evil intentions. I'm air quoting all of this crap, uh, you know, and, and it was all their fault, never Hubbard's fault. So there is that aspect of it too, which is the cultic aspect of that. I, the thing that most struck me about that and in learning about the specifics of what went on in the RPF was that this a lot of the stuff didn't seem to be there for incapacity for the traditional justifications of punishment. I mean, you've got deterrence. Sure, people are terrified of the RPF, but at some point you can't avoid it. It's just such a routine punishment that it's it's kind of it's going to happen whether you want it or not. It's all politics. That's right. That's exactly right. Retribution and they deserve it. I mean, yeah, okay. But that depends on who's at the top who decides who deserves it. You've yeah. got rehabilitation. The, the conditions in the RPF have no study time, no rest time. That is not conducive towards rehabilitation if you believe in Scientology tech. That's right. That's exactly right. I mean, Although I will, I do have to correct you on one thing. It's, it's, it's five hours a day of rehabilitation time on the RPF, which is time spent in study or auditing. The rest of the day is spent in intense heavy labor, running all over the place, doing push-ups and, and jumping jacks every time you mess during up. The study during the study time, did people study or did they sleep? Oh no, there was study. No, 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 no. There's no sleeping. Oh, it, oh. It's, it's not. You're under. You're under the microscope all day, every day. There is no such thing as a private moment on the RPF. So uh, the only place. The only place that we could catch a few Z's here and there was literally in the bathroom. And I mean, we're talking about a 15 minute cat nap or something. I mean, it was kind of like that. Um, the five hours was mandated as part of the schedule that you do study or auditing during that time as part of your program to get through the, the whole RPF. That's how you do it. And, the, and the, the work is supposed to be your exchange with the organization for, for providing you with food and board and uniforms and the opportunity to redeem yourself. So that's, that's kind of the attitude of the RPA. I got the impression there is much less monitoring uh, of the study oh, no. time. I stand no, corrected. No, it's, it's, it's rigorous. Yeah, it's rigorous. But, um, uh, but in terms of people who are not on the RPF, your regular Sea Org members, yes, then everything you just said actually is true. People blow off their study, uh, they sleep through it, they um, just disappear for a while because that because that's the only free unmonitored or fairly unmonitored time versus their post time where they're working and you know nose to the grindstone and they and they are being monitored and supervised. Um, well, another justification of punishment is incapacitation, but if you get a situation in which uh, the leader of Scientology is addressing letters, uh, gold base SPs, I'm not sure if that's the biggest justification for that. Yes, of course. Absolutely. Um, now, in terms of the arbitrariness of the committees of evidence and the courts of ethics and stuff, I wanted to, I wanted to bring this up while we were, while we we're on this. Um, 
it's random as to whether, you know, one of the things Hubbard wrote about in his, in his justice policies is that it's supposed to be, justice is supposed to be knowable, predictable, understandable. Um, laws are supposed to be understandable. This is why Scientology's justice codes are very plain English. One or two lines describes the offense. It's not paragraphs and, and, and sub codes under codes and, you know, all this kind of thing. The law is admittedly very difficult to understand for the layman. Uh, Scientology justice codes are, are easily understood, but very arbitrarily applied. I would disagree with that. Tell me. One of the reasons why uh, you have so much space written on laws uh, in the regular system is because you want to avoid confusion, avoid arbitrariness. You get into a situation in which uh, an executive, sorry, uh, HCOPL, uh, 18 October 1967, failure to follow or apply condition, any executive failing to assign or enforce conditions penalties below normal is himself assigned the condition he or she should have, uh, have assigned. What, what if they make a mistake? And they catch it. What what about their senior? What about their senior? Where does it start? Where does it end? What if it's a nor a, a simple mistake? What what if it's uh, they were specifically not instructed to do that by a senior? What does that mean? I, I agree with you that they're too simplistic in Scientology. I wasn't trying to present the idea that this is a model to follow. <laughs> I was trying to make the point that it is too simplistic. Um, and But it does make it easier for the regular person who only has a passing acquaintance with this. Like your regular Joe Blow Scientologist reads these policy letters, reads over the ethics codes, the justice codes, and says, well, that's simple and easy to understand not getting into the minutia of it, because when they're reading it, they're generally reading it, not with the idea that this is going to apply to them at some point, but they just kind of read it over and then they compare it to the difficulties they've had understanding the law and legalese. I mean, they even call it legalese, you know? It's like a whole other language in some ways. I mean, they use, they throw Latin into the mix. I mean, law is is not something your regular Joe is really enthusiastic about going and reading and embracing and understanding. I mean, that's, you agree with that, right? <laughs> I think de Tocqueville would disagree with you, but I'll, I'll take you, <laughs> uh, let's assume you're right. Okay. I mean, you know, they dumb it down quite a bit for TV for a reason, you know, it's because, it's because your regular people are like, I, you know, tort. I don't know what a tort is. I thought a tort was something I ate at breakfast. You know, I don't. I like. I don't know what these things are. You know, and I don't. And the, the habeas corpus. I mean, why? Why do we have to have that as a phrase? You know, all this Latin and stuff they drag into it. It gets a little difficult now. Hubbard plays on that. He plays on that confusion to provide this simplified system. I love all these air quotes I'm using today simplified system of a Scientology justice system that people will accept because they go, well, this looks one, simple, two, easy to understand, three, it can be executed quickly. All of those are supposedly good things to someone who doesn't really think the thought through. That's, you know, that's why, that's why doing a podcast about it makes sense because it because we are going to, you know, we're thinking the thoughts through a little bit and finding out that, no, this is, these are not features. These are bugs. <laughs> You know? 
I mean, that, that's one of the things I realized when reading through Hubbard's writings. In short bursts, they seem to make sense for that policy letter. But when you start to combine policy letters, it starts to look very scary. Yes. Uh, because he might alternate between a few different meetings within the same policy letter. He might have a system that works within that policy letter by itself. But when you try to you combine that with meetings in another policy letter or another, or try to get it applied in practice, that's when things seem to break down. So as long as you're evaluating it in short snippets uh, and thinking about how can this work, you'll find a way it can work. But if you start thinking about how can it fail, then almost everything fails. Yeah, exactly. Hey, let's address the capricious aspect of this. You know, I mentioned, uh, I used the word arbitrary, um, and it has this sort of flavor of capriciousness. In other words, a senior person, uh, like I described earlier, can just be waiting, just waiting for that stat to go down so they can nail you, for example. Um, what sort of, how does that contrast or compare, and what were your thoughts about that compared to how our usual regular justice system, like what sort of safeguards are in place there that prevent that, or at least try to prevent it, which don't exist in, in Scientology? I mean, having a defense attorney is a major element. Um, and that's why those guys get paid. Uh, and that's why there has been such a big deal about the state subsidizing defense attorneys for people who can't afford them because you want to avoid that. That's considered a failure of the system if people can just pick and choose when they're going to punish someone. I mean, there are a number of due process arguments that uh, if it's arbitrary, you, have, you don't have the notice, the ability to deter people, and therefore it doesn't meet the purposes of law. So you have a lot of arguments in that respect. So there was a case back in the 70s, 71, I wanna say, where uh, gang members uh, gathering together was illegal. Well, who's a gang member? Uh, what's gathering together? What if they're just going to a baseball game and not uh, going to commit any crime? And so it's so vague that it's arbitrary and you can't actually effectively deter bad behavior. You can't get people to work within the system. It's impossible to work within the system when you have stuff that is so so completely up to a person, up to leadership's political whims. It's and there's a good example of, of why something wouldn't work out in the real world. But such a rule, a similar type of rule could exist in Scientology. Uh, you know, they don't give a crap about gangs, but I'm just making the, the, like a simplistic rule that is that could be interpreted 20 different ways. That's what all the Scientology justice codes are. Oh, yeah. Because they are oversimplified, yeah? I, I mean, you have a charge. I, you have a charge in the justice codes of mayhem. That's it. That's the charge, mayhem. <laughs> um, it did have a legal meaning back in the past, which was to uh, disabled or uh, cut off uh, an appendage used for fighting, like their hand. But 
then it became something like rioting, then it became something like uh, just being disorderly, and now we don't really know. Right, exactly. So it's just, it's too simplistic. I mean, if you're charged with mayhem, you could get charged for almost anything you're doing if it's managing to piss somebody off. Ah, mayhem, ah, you know, and I'm just picking that at random. I mean, there's lists of these things. What, what, what leaped out at you when you were looking over those things? That a lot of the charges can actually make sense if they're explained. That mm-hmm. why are you doing this? What is the policy read? Reason. What is, what are the steps? What are the defenses? What are the ways to uh, make sure people aren't just hallucinating or making a mistake or trying to blame someone else? There's no there's no defense process, uh, so it just keeps on going into a cycle of worse and worse and worse. All that stuff can make sense. You have the Uniform Code of Military Justice with similarly vague articles like 134, general article, which can mean all sorts of things. But you have uh, a bunch of stuff that elaborates on that, that makes it more precise, that tells you, okay, it's not just looking at me wrong, it's um, actually trying to hit someone or things like that. Uh, You actually go into an effort to make it more predictable, make ways so people can avoid causing problems ways for people to work within the system without getting punished. Okay. Something else comes to mind right now uh, with you just having talked about that there. Originally in the 1960s, Hubbard created this idea of committees of evidence with the idea that you could hold a committee of evidence over a situation that was not an individual committing a crime. There could be an up statistic of long duration, and a committee of evidence could be held as a fact-finding body to investigate and recommend new policy to further that up statistic. Or conversely, there's a long-term down statistic, which belongs to more than just one person. And you could hold a committee of evidence to find out what's up with that, why did that statistic continue to go down, 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 down? And what policies should we implement that would prevent that in the future in similar circumstances in other organizations? That use of committees of evidence pretty much went by the wayside by the 1970s. And something else that does not exist in Scientology is the concept of case law, as I understand it, which is precedent. Joe Schmo in 1973 was commeved because that's the short term for it, commev, because he did XYZ. Now we have a precedent set. And from here on out, when somebody does XYZ, this is pretty much the direction we're going to be taking and the precedents that we've set. That does not exist in any way. There is no history in Scientology with its justice. What do you, what, what's your take on that? I mean, Case law is one of the ways to make vague, vague law more predictable. So you have two ways of making things predictable for people. One is vague, simple stuff on the books, but a whole bunch of uh, cases that explain what, what that means, what that's going to be applied as, what's the practice, what's the reasoning. The other is really long statutes that try to articulate everything. You you see that in the American system where, 
okay, you had some pretty short uh, statutes on the books, but a whole bunch of cases versus Frederick II, who tried to create something like a 10,000 uh, article legal code that people stopped trying to follow. Uh, just trying to create more and more massive legal codes was ineffective at getting compliance. Okay. Yeah. What do you think after everything you read? Because I, I sent you the, 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 the pretty much the full body of, of the justice policy letters and stuff in Scientology. And you read all that stuff over. And kudos to you for doing that, by the way, because, uh, you know, I'd have a hard time going through all that stuff again. It was just so tedious in some aspects. You wouldn't believe the amount of caffeine I've drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet. <laughs> so what was your... You know, maybe we should have led with this, but I'll, uh, you know, we're we're going towards the towards the end of this now. What was your overall concept or idea in terms of critiquing what Hubbard put together? There's a lot of bureaucracy in place, but it's so vague that it can't be effective. It needs someone at the top to make a call. And when that person is Hubbard, he had the experience to uh, move people around in a way that stuff would work. Uh, only measure on one stat, but then he pulls another guy in to fill up some of the gaps that only doing that one stat would cause. And any legal system is only one part of society. There are other things that have to work as well. And a lot of that comes down to management skills. And when you have an utter, when you have a lack of management skill, you start to see a lot more problems getting referred to the le to the legal system and the punishment system. And when the punishment system uh, seems more and more arbitrary, you start to see a loss of compliance through all levels of an organization. And I think what Scientology is seeing is a a massive loss of effective management leading to more and more drastic punishments. And the mindset for punishment has completely changed. It's no longer trying to, how can we run the organization more effectively? How can we spread this? It's become a matter of social status. It's not punishment to achieve more productivity. It's punishment to establish social status and shame other people. I agree. I, I think you nailed it there. And I think that the rise in, as I described earlier in the show here, the rise of more ethics actions, justice actions, the, the, the rise of heavier and heavier disciplinary actions. I mean, we certainly saw that when Miscavige took everything into his own hands in the whole you know, that we that was described in the Going Clear film and and the book where he was rounding people up his his, you know, his his SPs, gold base SPs, and sticking them in a double wide trailer and and exerting all sorts of physical punishments on them. I mean, that was that was unprecedented. Hubbard never even did anything like that. But, you know. And it doesn't make it doesn't make sense from the conventional justifications of punishment, but it does make sense in terms of trying to shame people. Yes. And that's one argument that some punishment should shame people. Uh, and shame is one of those fundamental social emotions that mediate concerns in society. But there's another thing. You run into the danger of a loop 
that uh, you've shamed these people, they can't be trusted because they're shameful, and then they get uh, then they get into a system and they get they're not trusted because they're shameful, and then they get punished in another shameful way. So it becomes kind of a self-reinforcing punitive loop. And that's not a recipe for rehabilitation. It's not a recipe for trust. It's not a recipe for productivity, but it is a recipe for um, a lot of brutal status seeking. Yes, that's right. This is really interesting to me. Some of the things you've said have been very insightful, and I felt... I feel that this is shedding some light on some things in terms of Miscavige's behavior that from an angle I hadn't looked at before. Uh, and, that, and that's good. I really appreciate that. Because um, I think this is, I think it's true. He is an incompetent manager. His programs don't result in the things he envisions that they will result in. I don't imagine that he's had the idea that Scientology is just going to fail and is supposed to fail from the day he took over. I think he took over with the idea that he was gonna make a go of it and he was gonna make it work and he was gonna be the most successful leader Scientology ever had. And yet, within a few years, other than getting tax exemption from the IRS, Miscavige's list of accomplishments are actually a list of failures. So it makes complete sense to me what you said that his punishments would become harsher and harsher and worse and worse over the years as a direct result of that. Weird the sounds, but uh, I actually enjoyed listening to his uh, victory over the IRS speech. I didn't buy a word of it, but it was certainly, <laughs> he's a skilled public speaker. He can put on a show. He can create an aura of strength and unity. But when you try to look at the specifics, it's just, there's no there there. He can't be precise. He can't be detailed because otherwise the threads start to show. That's right. That's right. His marketing and PR, the, the the putting on of these events and the and the public speaking aspect of what he does, is his number one skill. And it's beautiful propaganda. It I, I loved watching Scientology videos for the production quality. Not <laughs> not that I, the words are horrible, but you gotta say these are great special effects. These are really soothing. Great music. Great yes. actors. But. Oh man, it's 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 as Mark Headley said, it's smoke and mirrors. It's it's brilliant smoke. It's really glossy and it's wonderful mirrors. I mean, you, you're really seeing some great reflections of non-reality there. But but when the rubber meets the road, yeah, there's no meat to those potatoes. You know, there's nothing there. And and he has yet managed to pull off decades of redefinition of failure equals success you know and if somebody gets out of line in comes the justice to shut them down or shut them up and i am speculating that one reason why people keep on going along with scientology's justice system is that they keep on having faith that this system makes sense yes that if you keep on thinking of how can it work like the ARC triangle, you can find ways in which a situation can fit the ARC framework. You yes. provided an example where it didn't work, but that requires a very different way of thinking. And right. some there's a situation in which some people feel that thinking about failure indicates disloyalty. So they don't oh, yeah. go there. Oh, yeah. So 
that's not a recipe for a stable, reliable organization. Big time, big time. Okay, man, I'm going to wrap up now because I think we've uh, I think we've covered some very good points here. Uh, is there anything else about this system that we did not cover that you felt should be brought up or should be talked about? I, I'd like to go into a little more detail about shame. Yes, please. Uh, because that's a defining feature of the modern RPF. And uh, there's been kind of a big debate about shame being problematic as a judicial punishment. And oh. I'd like, and I mean, there's efforts to reintroduce it, but there's a lot of problems that come with it, especially when you have a huge trust divide. And just given a lot of the rather radical changes in Scientology over the recent years, I'd say there was a huge loss of trust within Scientology. And I'd like to suggest uh, the universality of shame put out by the University of California, Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. And what's really wrong with shaming sanctions by Dan M. Ahan from Yale. He used to be in favor of shaming punishments, but now came out against it. So I think that's certainly one thing to look at of how shaming people makes the RPF even more and more drastic. I agree with that. I witnessed uh, firsthand plenty of instances of public shaming being used as, this, as a disciplinary action within the RPF and outside of it. This is just a Sea Org thing. In fact, I'd say it's a Scientology thing because I've seen it at the public levels as well. But especially within the Sea Org, you have such a tight-knit group of people and no one has no one has the right to any secrets. You still have them. You still are doing things personally in your own personal life that you still have a little modicum of. And if uh, those secrets were to come out uh, or, or you were made to feel guilty about things, even things that don't really matter, that can set up this, this uh, you know, circuit feedback system you were talking about. I'll give you an example. On the RPF, there was a guy who would not stop jerking off. He just wouldn't stop masturbating. He just couldn't. It was just something he was doing. And he made a habit out of it. And it was just kind of this compulsive sort of thing he had. And it got to the point, because in Scientology and the Sea Org, this is a very, very, very bad thing to be doing. I mean, out in the real world, nobody cares at all but in the world of the sea org it matters and this guy finally got to the point where the rpf in charge got it into his head that the only way he was going to get this guy to stop it was to publicly shame him and he started making announcements at the musters to the entire rpf you know, this guy, I won't say his name, but this guy won't stop jerking off. And he, there's another report of he just did it yesterday, you know, and we'd all be like, damn, dude, one, I really don't want to hear this. You know, we were thinking that that was part of the damn was damn, I don't want to know that. And two, I felt so embarrassed for him. Because, you know, in that world, that was a, you know, criminal act or was being made out to be a criminal act, you know? So, so uh, did it stop him from masturbating? No, it didn't. It was just another of, you know, an endless line of things to, to, to make somebody wrong and feel horrible about. But in the end, 
it wasn't addressing anything that was really wrong. And it wasn't doing anybody any good to 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 pillory this guy, you know? Um, this has certainly been an interesting uh, conversation for me. I learned a few things about uh, uh, studying actually being a thing in the RPF. Yeah. No, it was very necessary. You'll never get through the program if you don't. There would be short, short stints, maybe a day or two or three, where there might be some heavy demand to get some particular thing done, some construction done or some deconstruction or something that the RPF was working on that had to get done. And there was a time frame to it. And so we had to stay up all night or something like that. That was few and far between. The, the, the main line of that program is you got to get through the program and you can't do the program if you're not going on study and doing auditing. So that's the way that you get the RPF to revolt is you take away their study time and you deny them the ability to get through the program. And if that goes on for longer than a couple of days, the RPF in general is going to rise up and, and do something about that. Okay, so there is. Of, yeah, because it's just a bunch of people who are trying to get through this program. So, um, but that I, that was never even really put to the test because it, it, it never really happened that way. So, huh. I wonder how that changed since Mark Headley's time. What do you refer to? Um, I mean, I kept on hearing about some rather drastic punishments of people in the whole or in the RPF uh, back about a decade ago. And that's what really started me thinking. But I'm guessing your experience was a little more recent and there had been some re-emphasis on rehabilitation as opposed to uh, just going wild. Let me help you out here because I'm glad you're bringing this up because now we can clarify this and, and clarify it for viewers as well. The whole, the thing that, that David Miscavige was doing at the Int base and the RPF are wholly separate things. Oh, they're separate programs. Not they are not related in any way. Oh, whole, oh, 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 sorry. No, it's all good. I'm glad you brought it up. I'm glad we can clarify this. The, I mean, I the, thought the whole was a sub-program within, but no. No. David Miscavige invented that out of his head or his ass, whichever way you want to look at it, uh, all on his own. The whole was not the RPF. The whole was actually 10 times worse than the RPF because there was no study. There was no auditing. There was no enhancement. There was no redemption. You were just stuck in a prison, literally doors locked, windows barred, security guard at the door. And those people could not get out. They did not have freedom of movement, freedom of, certainly not freedom of speech. Um, they didn't have freedom of anything. And it was a group shaming activity, as you pointed out. It became a Lord of the Flies situation, you know, where they were just infighting and, and currying favor and trying to get themselves out of there. And it was every man or woman for themselves. That is a very different thing from the RPF, which is a structured, hierarchical, rigid, guidelined, ruled program that has very specific things that have to be done every single day. And there are very strict rules and guidelines to how it operates. And there is a program of actions you are doing that get you from A to B. And when you reach B, you are done. There is no more RPF for you, you graduate. The whole did not have anything like that. The whole was this completely arbitrary, David Miscavige will let you out when he feels like letting you out. 
And that that's a very, very, those are two different activities. So I hope I've clarified that. You have, and that makes, that actually makes some kind of sense. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the reasons why it was so horrifying, even to Scientologists or former Scientologists, because I had experienced the RPF. I did the whole program. That was the worst thing that ever happened to me in my entire life. I mean, it was, it sucked. But it, but it was a vacation compared to the hole. I mean, I would not wish the hole on my worst enemy. So, you know, different things there. Because Miscavige basically threw the entire justice and ethics rule book out the window. I mean, the, the whole was just, the, it was just him wetting his sadistic appetite on his juniors. And it, and it took public exposure before it was canceled, before they stopped doing that. They don't do that anymore. Whatever they're doing up at the base, they're not doing that. So, um, and ironically, uh, or, you know, whatever, um, the RPF really doesn't exist anymore. Uh, in its in this in the form that we are familiar with, uh, they didn't cancel it. I have I've I've come to learn recently that it was not formally uh, by issue canceled. They just emptied it out, and they're not sending people to it anymore. So that's kind of the current state of affairs with the RPF in Scientology and the Sea Org. So they're kicking people out now or they are simply giving them some other kind of form of punishment. And like, let's say, you know, Joe Schmo is on a, is on a fairly high post and he goes and has an affair with some other woman and he's married. Well, he's, he's probably going to get kicked out of the Sea Org is what's going to happen to him. Or he'll be demoted to a position of much less responsibility and he'll get raked over the coals, but he won't get sent to the RPF anymore. So that's, that is, both of those things are the direct result of public exposure. So that's what's kind of happening in the Sea Org now. That sounds like it's going to put a lot more stress on good management skills. Yes, it is. And the fact that their management skills suck so hard means that they are losing people left, right, and center. And, uh, and because they are continuing to mismanage their organizations, all the ways that I've talked about when I was a CEO executive, all that crap is still happening. The yelling, the screaming, the quotas, the, the, the boiler room environment of the Sea Org, all of that is still in place. But these massive punishments have been sort of taken off the line because of the public exposure of them. And so now there are substitute activities they do with people who get in trouble but they don't do those things anymore. Well, and maybe after a few years, Miscavige feels that the public exposure will die down, people will stop talking about it, and he can go about re-implementing them. I'm sure that, you know, I'm sure he does not feel at all <laughs> uh, sorry for anything he ever did in regards to all of that. Of that, I am a thousand percent certain. Well, I want to thank you very much for actually being part of this and uh, and writing to me about this because this is an area that I have not particularly addressed head on. Uh, yet, I do have a video to make in the future about the, the, the framework of the ethics and justice system where I'll break it all down in, with graphics and stuff so people can get it. But as far as this conversation goes, this is one I think that needed to be had. And I really appreciate you taking the time to reach out and um, and give me your expertise on this. So thank you. I'd love to learn more about leadership in Scientology.
<laughs> okay, I'll, I'll turn you on to a couple policy letters after we're done here, and you can take a look at those, and that might give you the flavor of what's going on with that. Okay. All right, folks. So thank you very much for coming around and watching uh, what we had to say here. Really appreciate your time and attention. Leave any questions, comments, or feedback in the comments section below here on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. And consider supporting this channel if you find it informative, educational, and entertaining uh, through patreon.com uh, slash Chris Shelton. Link below on this video or on my podcast uh, because that's what allows me to keep doing this. Okay, folks, see you next week. Bye-bye.